from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta, welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Our scripture lesson today comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. I want to say a few words about this before we dig into it and read it aloud. The first is that we're at a point in Luke, in chapter 9, where Jesus has set his face to go to Jerusalem, where as if everything in his life wasn't tense and combative enough, things have gotten more serious. This section is him and his followers moving toward Jerusalem. Second, at the beginning of chapter 10, Jesus has sent his disciples out two by two into the world, almost like a dress rehearsal to go out and see what it was like as they are going to be called to do once uh, we get to the book of Acts, which is Luke's sequel. The third thing is that the story that we're reading, which is the famous story of the parable of the Good Samaritan, is followed by the story of two women named Mary and Martha, another fairly famous story in which one woman comes and tends to Jesus by listening to him, and one is very busy trying to do what she thinks is right. And there are parallels that we won't have time in the sermon to draw out between Mary and Martha and the Good Samaritan story that I think are interesting for you to take home and work on on your own. Listen to the word of God. Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. He put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him. When I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Where'd Greg go? Greg, where are you? Is there anybody else want to move to another place? He scared me. I thought you were just leaving. Subconsciously, I think, 
or with full awareness, we justify just about every decision that we make on a daily basis. From the moment we get up, even maybe before we even get up, sleeping a little bit longer, we justify that as I need more time. Getting up when we haven't slept enough, we justify as I need to go to work, do some more work, everything's going to be good there to prove myself, or I need to get up and help the kids get ready. Minute details, even how long will I brush my teeth, involve some sort of justification. If we do it a certain amount, that voice in our head that is telling us how much we're supposed to do will stop, and we can put the brush down and be okay. And we don't have to floss anymore from what I've been reading. It's not as important as we were all told. So you don't have that voice about, well, I'm not going to floss. I don't have time to floss, justifying that. Decisions continue minute by minute. I can eat at work. My body doesn't need breakfast. I just need to get out the door. A donut won't hurt. I'm going to work out later. I'm not going to work out today. I'm going to work out tomorrow. Justification comes easy. There are reasons, but it's something we do all day long. It makes things okay in our minds. And sometimes it's frivolous, yet we know a bit neurotically that in the moment, those voices in our head, justifying what we are doing, telling us that we are okay, that those things are not always easy. We've created an ethical world in which we live in our minds, and we seek to stay straight to that, and we justify ourselves all day long. Today we are talking about the parable of the Good Samaritan. Somebody take this. I don't want to get it mixed up. I'll end up reading that, and it's not part of my sermon. We're talking about the parable of the Good Samaritan today, and it's part of this theme that we started, I believe, way back on June 4th, in which Reverend Tony Sundermeyer spoke about the parable of the Great Banquet, and we moved through the summer, one after the other, uh, talking about how these parables were a way that Jesus engaged his listeners, a way that Jesus not just engaged them, but challenged them, and oftentimes put ideas in their face in a way that startled them into uh, striking reactions. This is a story type that is used over and over and over again. The story of the good Samaritan. We hear of this church elder, this lawyer of the church who challenges and says to Jesus, who is my neighbor? So Jesus tells this story. One guy, this guy who is walking down the road, sees someone else who has been beaten. And we're told that a priest has already come, a religious leader, and walked the other way. We're told that another religious leader, a Levite, has come and gone the other way. But it's this Samaritan who is in question and who is striking. Oftentimes, I think when we hear that word, Samaritan, it comes to us as just someone who does something good. Not that it was necessarily this person of this different ethnicity, this person of a different tribe from those who would have been hearing this story when it was told by Jesus, all those who were gathered around, and also when it was being read by the early church and now us. It's someone who is very, very different and striking in the very fact that Jesus would have mentioned that. And if you've heard people preach on this sermon, you've heard that kind of, uh, um, kind of put to bed, that we're recognizing that this is someone different. 
If we were to tell the story in our contemporary setting, we might as well say that it was a Muslim, someone ethnically, someone perhaps ethnically, but someone religiously different, an other that would be startling for us to hear being a part of the story, let alone being the so-called hero of the story and the one that we are told to emulate. This guy who goes down and helps the one who is beat up. And Jesus ends this story. He puts it in the face of the one who has asked the question and says, go and do likewise. He challenges the lawyer who has asked. And the reason that the question has been asked is because Jesus has already put another question, which is, Jesus has already helped him answer another question, which is, how do I inherit eternal life? And the man answered by saying, I must love God and love my neighbor. As simple as that. The question, how must I inherit eternal life? That's the biggest question. Love God, love your neighbor. And then it says, but, wanting to justify himself, he asked, who is my neighbor? We justify ourselves all day long. And so did the lawyer. We want to make things right in our mind. And the day continues, and we go about different decisions, some that are small and some that are big. All of these little decisions about justifying what we do, like the lawyer does here, justifying what a neighbor is, seeking to justify himself, the little decisions we make are also then microcosms of the big decisions that we make, the major moral complexities of our life that have an impact on the world. And whatever decisions we make about those major moral complexities, we seek to justify. We seek to have some sense that it is okay that we have that belief, that it is okay that we're going to go about letting that belief guide how we actually live in our lives. It is an, such an important part of how we frame our very minds and how we act upon the things that we believe in. We think about big questions where we might send our children to school. How we'll spend our money? What if we don't have money to spend? How we'll look at those with more? How we'll look at those with less? We even justify in different ways coming to this particular church over another one, making decisions to come on perhaps Labor Day and not another day or vice versa. We justify all of these things. I was reading about something called cognitive dissonance. And cognitive dissonance is when we seek to have a consistency in our beliefs because sometimes our beliefs contrast with each, with each other. And when our beliefs contrast with each other, things get mixed up and there is an equilibrium that is disturbed. When these things contrast, we need something to be set right. And that moment is a moment of cognitive dissonance. One of the biggest examples that is used when people are explaining cognitive dissonance is that of doing something bad for yourself. The example often used is of smoking, um, where my belief is smoking is bad. The research even says so. I like smoking. Two beliefs come together, and there's a dissonance, and something has to be resolved. I was thinking about this yesterday when I 
pulled into the Fellini's Pizza Shop on La Vista Road over where I live and uh, pulled next to a, a certain special looking car. And as I got out, uh, actually as I was coming back, scraped the door of that special looking car. And beliefs started to contrast with each other in my mind. One, I believe in honesty, believe in justice. I should tell that person or find that person whose car was sitting there, especially as a minister. The second belief is I need to pick up my kids in five minutes. The third belief is this is a pretty special car and this person's probably living a life of privilege and can buff out this scrape without me having anything to do with it. And the fourth was they're not even parked in their own lines. They were in my space anyway. All of these beliefs come together and they start to present some sort of resolution to the dissonance of different, of different sorts of beliefs. So I did what I always do and I left. <laughs> All right, so actually this didn't happen. I thought of it in my mind. And, and we realized this morning at 8.30 that I just lied to you and justified that by saying it was a really good example though. So we justify these things in all sorts of different ways. But I did pull next to this special looking car who was in my uh, lane, was in my parking space, and I really thought about maybe just scraping it a little bit. Cognitive dissonance is the reason we justify ourselves. If we don't, we live in that unsettled equilibrium. And we justify big things in our lives, not to be silly about it. We justify different types and ways of killing, stealing, lying, cheating. I said to a young person I know uh, who was dealing with a dilemma that you need to find the right lie to tell. And he said, well, what's the right lie? And I said, there is no right lie. You shouldn't lie. What do you mean, what is the right lie? We find ways to justify everything, literally everything, and perhaps in our own lives. I mean, I know this to be true for myself. We justify something that we haven't even yet told anybody else. And we're dealing with it in a way that tries to settle the equilibrium that is out of balance. There is a character actor by the name of John Polito who died, I think, just yesterday. And he, is, uh, he was known for being in the films of the Coen brothers and was particularly in a movie called Miller's Crossing that the Coen brothers made. And in this, he played a gangster named Johnny Casper. And one of his famous lines that is repeated in this film is ethics. And he starts going on and on about ethics. And there's one line that, uh, that I came across that I think is pretty funny, where he says, it's getting so a businessman can't expect no return from a fixed fight. Now, if you can't trust a fix, what can you trust? He has justified the crime of fixing a boxing match, but can't understand someone else justifying themselves by leaking that a fight is fixed and making money off it that way. There's cognitive dissonance. Two beliefs crossing each other. He's not even talking about the belief that a fight shouldn't be fixed in the first place. We solve cognitive dissonance in a couple of different ways. The first is just saying, I don't care. I'm going to do what I want to do. 
And it'd be interesting, I think, to, t- to kind of take an inventory of how often we do that just to get by. Another is to change the belief that we have, to switch things around, to figure out it's okay to lie when you're giving a sermon. We want to use an example. We find reasons where we change our belief. It's okay to do this. It's okay for this lawyer to ask, who is my neighbor? But the third way is to actually scold ourselves, maybe scold's too harsh of a word, but to actually look at ourselves and say, I did something wrong, may I have forgiveness, and I'm going to change to get back to that belief that I hold. And again, I think it's interesting when I think about how we go about our daily basis, our daily lives, about how, uh, how much we do each one of these and how often we need to just say, I did something wrong and be humble about it and ask for forgiveness, to hold on to that belief, even if it requires embarrassment. Another thing to consider about the, uh, the line that the lawyer says, when he says, um, when it says that he was seeking to justify himself, it's a line that is used uh, throughout the uh, biblical writers, um, throughout the biblical writers, I just totally made that up. It's a line that's uh, found throughout the scriptures that is, also, that is associated essentially with actual uh, court settings. It's a line that could have an equivalent of, of wanting to acquit himself. That's a little bit harsher of a word. He's wanting to get by without consequences. He's wanting to acquit himself is when he says, who is my neighbor? And this line makes its way, uh, it makes its way throughout the Old Testament. There's a place where Job says, I presented my case before God. I know I will be vindicated. I know I will be acquitted. I know I will be justified. In the New Testament, even further on in Luke, there's a place where Jesus is talking about the Pharisees who are uh, spending money in a way that is really to show how generous they are to the rest of the world. And Jesus says, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of others, but God knows your hearts. Jesus doesn't mince words about justification, about self-justification. He says, get over yourselves in these limits you are trying to put on the love I am calling you to have in this world. There's a place in the, in the uh, Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew where six different times Jesus says, you have heard that it was said. And he refers to a law that came from the Old Testament. And then he says, but I tell you. The biggest example is he says, I have heard, you have heard that it was, that it was said, thou shalt not murder. But I tell you, anyone who calls someone a fool is guilty of murder. Jesus is trying to show and to say that those who are listening continue to say to him, oh, I haven't done that. I think I'm okay. I'm justifying myself before you. And he's saying, even if you do something that just leads to that concept of what is really at the heart of the law, you're breaking that law. At the end of that section, he actually says, be perfect. Kind of in an ironic way there. You can't be perfect according to this. He's showing them that you can't. And the writer Paul spends a lot of time that our Reformed tradition has focused on by saying again that it is not justifying or self-justifying that makes us right before God, but it is God's grace that justifies us before God. 
It is only God who can do this. If we think that by making the right decisions, we'll justify ourselves, we're kidding ourselves, we always end up making decisions that we self-justify just to settle that equilibrium that is in disorder. Who is my neighbor? I need a strict definition so I'm not helping the wrong person. There's a book that uh, some of you perhaps in Sunday schools have heard me read this, this quote. I don't think I ever made it through the whole book, but I love this quote and I've used it three or four times. It's by uh, Edward O. Wilson, evolutionary biologist, and it's called The Social Conquest of Earth. And he talks about how humans use, uh, use being in social situations, forming groups as a way to continue to survive. The forming groups was an important part of humans being able to survive on this earth. He says, to form groups, drawing visceral comfort and pride from familiar fellowship, and to defend the group enthusiastically against rival groups, these are among the absolute universals of human nature and of culture. In other words, the question, who is my neighbor, has been being asked from as long as we have existed. Who is it that I should love? He goes on to say, people savor the company of like-minded friends and they yearn to be in one of the best groups, a combat marine regiment perhaps, an elite college, the executive committee of a company, a religious sect, a fraternity, a garden club, any collectivity that can be compared favorably with another, competing groups, something that can make us feel special something that in a way also limits who is our neighbor. And I think it's important to recognize that as human beings, that's one of our natural instincts. That we shouldn't beat ourselves up that we like to be in groups that are to a degree similar than us. It protects us, it saves us, it gives us comfort on a minute by minute basis. But it's not how Jesus completely calls us to lead our lives. It is interesting, though, that if you go to those laws of, say, the Old Testament that were given to the Israelites, a lot of those laws are considered to be laws that were to protect that particular tribe in the world against other tribes. This was the God of Abraham and of Jacob and their descendants, and that God was going to protect them. And a lot of those laws helped that. If you look at the Ten Commandments, one might translate that thou shalt not kill as thou shalt not murder. In other words, don't kill within our group because we need to survive. If you even look in the New Testament, two weeks ago, Reverend Sundermeyer preached on the story of the sheep and the goats where Jesus says, whatever you've done to the least of these, you've done to mine. Some look at Matthew as a book specifically writing to a particular church. I think Tony even mentioned that two weeks ago. Writing to a particular church. And quite possible, one of the uh, kind of uh, nuances of that verse is he's actually telling those who are out there in the, world, in the world to treat his own disciples like they would treat him. His disciples end up in jail. He sends his disciples without tunics and sandals. He sends his disciples relying on others for food. In other words, even a passage that we go to to warm our hearts to say, love others because it's like loving Jesus, might have even had a nuance that still was insular, was tribal, was about this group. Lucky for us and for the world, Jesus said that that group was about expanding. 
and sharing the grace in the world in a way that would be impactful. We do choose tribes. Sometimes tribes choose us, and that feels really good. Tribes in which we share in laws and mores, rituals and norms. It's easy to find a neighbor in the communities that we choose to be a part of. Therefore, it's a lot less of a need to justify ourselves, and a lot more equilibrium is there, and a lot less cognitive dissonance. But even in the law given to the Israelites, and especially in the law that Jesus is imparting to those who are his disciples and those who would follow him, love overrides. Love seeps into that law. The law that was so strong of a God who loved God's people says, well, that alien, that orphan, that widow, yeah, let's make that part of the law too. Even if they are part of our group, it's not going to help us make us stronger to fight against others. We believe it is valuable to take care of them. The language begins to be stronger and stronger and stronger about who it is that is to be part of this tribe and how the definition of neighbor is to be understood. There's a story I read this week that I really don't know if it fits, but I was dying to tell it because I found it interesting, is uh, in a study done with uh, some of the chimpanzees at the Yerkes Primate Center over at Emory, it was looking about how they cooperate with each other sometimes, and also about how they compete with one another, and about the processes in which uh, these developments happen. Um, in which chimpanzees will come and help one another. And if one comes and tries to do something by themselves, and as the, the test was using the word as a freeloader, the other will push them out of the way, or will just step back and let them try to do it by themselves. And what it said was that these chimps, on a five-to-one basis, will do something more cooperative than they will competitive. And here's uh, something that I couldn't find the science behind, but I thought was a great quote. That ratio, the five to one ratio of doing something to cooperate rather than to compete, is exactly the same ratio that people say is needed for a human relationship to succeed. You and I and the people in this room and those we know have lots and lots of little tribes. If I were to go about this room, I could just name some of the connections we have, some that have been laid out over five, perhaps, uh, ideas or five examples of cooperation amidst competition, maybe places that we've traveled, traveled together, maybe ideas that we share, maybe teams that we root for, little ways in which we build tribal relationships in order to protect ourselves, in order to keep ourselves going in this world. But even if I did that, say I was to say, by the way, I was thinking of this example, and I don't see any Steeler fans out there, Pittsburgh Steeler fans out there. Well, my children are here. You're still Steeler fans, right? Okay. <laughs> even if I were to say, okay, here's, here's a connection we have. Oh, we're Steeler fans. All that does then is begin to alienate me from others who are in this room. We need to continue to build those five cooperations over one competitions. We need to continue to expand that beyond the ways that are just within the tribes that are comfortable 
the, the tribes that make us feel good. The lawyer, wanting to justify himself, said, who is my neighbor? And Jesus didn't answer. He said, well, a man was going down to Jerusalem. And at the end of that story, instead of saying, hey, did I answer your question? Is that something that was helpful to you? Did I help you work through that? Instead, he says, go and do likewise. Amen.